you're missing out on your greatest dream. Which is gross and weird. We can all assume gin was involved. Pizza, breadsticks, mac and cheese, three vegetables, fruit cocktail. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that is fragrant with memories of a lost world. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I wonder if we could have the hall boy to do some polishing. That would be spectacular, <laughs> because our house is a mess. That's true. Although there's not much of it that requires polishing. Yeah, but I assume you can just set a hall boy to any task. <laughs> That's true. You know, they yeah. just, they're, you know, they're just like, hey, you know, I'll do it. Yeah, they're one step away from poverty so yeah they're they're not too choosy right they don't have a union or anything <laughs> yet <laughs> I, now i'm like envisioning like the oldest living british hall boy <laughs> sitting at his local hall boy union <laughs> headquarters just waiting for the new generations to pour in <laughs> welcome back cousins yes it is downton abbey season six episode six right and uh we're like two thirds of the way through. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. It's I, happening. I thought there were so many more episodes, which <laughs> yeah. is what happened to us when we were doing the instant takes right. as yeah. well. We I were, was, we were startled. Like when it ended, we were like, Oh, we have a weekend off. <laughs> yeah. <This is> crazy. <laughs> um, we loved this episode. Yeah. So get excited. Yeah. I had some verbal feedback from a quote unquote friend <laughs> who was like, you guys don't seem to like the show anymore. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, the show is bad. Yeah, good observation. That, that was, uh, <laughs> in fact, the case. Uh, but this, man, this is a yeah. real return to form. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, I hope you're <laughs> listening. He's not. Okay. He was like, yeah, I'm not going to listen anymore. Well, fine then. Yeah. You're missing out on your greatest dream. <laughs> Us liking that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's on his vision for. Uh, but before we get into the episode, we have, as usual... A telegram from our cousin of the week. Cousin Michael writes, Hey guys, it's your self-proclaimed favorite black cousin that you didn't know existed until now. <laughs> I just wanted to share my headcanon for the last episode of Downton. So during one night, Cousin Violet was in a rather chatty mood. Unfortunately for her, the only person to talk with was Michael Gregson. Cousin Violet recounted the tale of one youthful Neville Chamberlain and his ditch-digging escapade. Gregson never forgot this story, and on his faithful... And on his fateful excursion to Germany, he told it to Hitler in hopes of sparing his life, which obviously didn't work. Fast forward to 1938 and a tension-filled meeting between Chamberlain and Hitler over the Sudetenland? Yeah. Over the Sudetenland, when Hitler pulls out his ace in the hole, the aforementioned story Gregson told him. Chamberlain, too worried about being ridiculed in the British press due to his youthful folly, relents. And bam! The Munich Agreement in World War II. Yes, cousins, Violet and by extension Gregson caused World War II. Sorry for the length, your favorite black cousin, Michael. Thank you for that. That Uh, We got so much... Chamberlain hate. Yes. After that, like, we as did. the episode, like, so many tweets were rolling in of people being like, oh, snap! He has always been like that! Yeah. Uh, so that's great. Good job, Baron Fellows, mm-hmm. on, you know, making sure. Yeah. That we know that Neville Chamberlain, uh, was a ponce. Yeah. And I like that story too, because, like, Gregson's just like, no, would you like to hear some gossip about an obscure <laughs> British politician? They're listening. <laughs> So it will not spare your life. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. You know, 
I don't know if he is our favorite black cousin. Yeah. Having any kind of competition just feels distasteful. No, they're all our favorite cousins. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of race, gender, or creed. That's right. Mm-hmm. Unless we're talking about uh, Adonis Creed. Because, <laughs> I mean, obviously. Well, sure. It's Michael B. Jordan. Like, yeah. let's not be ridiculous. Yes, yeah, that's our favorite cousin. That is our favorite cousin. <laughs> we love you, Michael. Are you listening? <laughs> we thought you were great in Friday Night Lights also. <laughs> All right. So if you would like to throw your hat in the ring for Cousin of the Week, you can send us a telegram to upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can also send us a tweet or carrier pigeon. We're at five Maggie Smiths. That's at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. Or just search us on Facebook. It's up yours downstairs exclamation point. Yes. Uh, that's all the housekeeping out of the way, I believe. That's right. Let us dive in. Guys, I'm so excited. This episode was so great. <laughs> Everybody looks so good. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Yeah. So we start out a car driving through the village and villagers, you know, walking along, probably presenting the owner of that car. <laughs> Mosley is handing out flyers uh, in aid of the hospital trust slash promoting a stand-up comedy show. <laughs> Somebody updates the church bulletin board uh, that mentions uh, Mr. Travis, yes. uh, the vicar. Yeah. If you're keeping score. A little continuity there. Mr. Travis, if you're nasty. (laughs) Uh, With a flyer listing, with a fire listing the open house at Downton Abbey, a rare opportunity to view the staterooms of Downton Abbey, which I have to honestly, it's a good looking flyer. Yeah. Solid kerning. It's true. Clear, concise copy. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. It's just funny as a viewer because it's like, Jesus, that's all we get is chances to view the state <laughs> rooms of Downton Abbey. We're like, ugh, we'd love to see the freaking, you know, supermarket. <laughs> In bed, Lord Grantham asks what these people are paying to see. All they have is a decent Reynolds, a couple of Romneys, and a winter halter. Which I took exception to, because Romney is great. If you're ever in New York, you go to the Frick Collection. There is a painting Romney painted of Lady Hamilton holding a dog that is just one of my favorite portraits ever. So, Lady Emma Hamilton? Yes. Okay. Uh, so that's my editorial. Thank you. Um, and he looks awful. He looks so bad. Okay, look. I took a stage makeup class mm-hmm. in college from a very resentful props master. <laughs> Who wasn't also a super great makeup artist, I don't think. Mm -hmm. It's been so long. Mm -hmm. I feel like I did a really good opposite gender project where I made my nose look like Owen Wilson's. (laughs) Yeah. But like, nothing that came out of that was near... No, you know, actually he was good because he would do my makeup for uh, Lady Bracknell when I played her in The Importance of Being Earnest. And he helped me not suck at that. (laughs) At any rate, it's like they just took the red, you know... uh, grease paint from the palette uh what is it called ben nye yeah i was like what's it called ben stein it's not called ben stein <laughs> no that's a whole different <laughs> it's a thing. whole different person uh they just took the red ben nye and just smeared it under his <laughs> eyes and they were like get on get in there kid yeah the ben stein makeup line is just made from the blood of poor people <laughs> yeah but if you buy enough you can win ben stein's money <laughs> yeah uh he became an annoying pundit anyway Aren't all pundits annoying? Yeah, but he was uh, above and beyond. Is he still punditing? Uh, I think he kind of got shoved out for just being too, like, ridiculous to even be a conservative pundit, but I don't know. <sighs> that's got it. Like, when you're having your dark nights of the soul, that's <laughs> really got a sting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Lord Grantham says that the people would do better going down to London and visiting the Tate. 
Branson says that that's not the point, and Mary agrees that people want to see the home, not the things in it. Lord Grantham says, how the other half lives, and Branson agrees. It's, not, it's like it's how the 1% lives. Like, it's not a half. <laughs> Lord Grantham asks... Occupy Downton. <laughs> Daisy's going to lead it. <laughs> Lord Grantham asks what Clarkson thinks, who turns out to be there, and he says that they could raise a lot of hey, money. it's Andy's job to be the person who's also sometimes in the room. <laughs> You're right. But Clarkson pops up in surprising places this season. It's true. They must really love that actor. The, yeah, they must. I mean, I feel like that's why they went with this hospital gambit, just to have Yeah, just to keep to have, him around. Yeah. And I like that actor. Yeah, so, you know, yeah that's fine. In, insofar as that's concerned, yeah. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Clarkson says they could raise a lot of money, and McGee says that they're opening the house for one day, and there's an end to it. Mary and Branson have decided it. Lord Grantham says he knows that when Mary is spoken, his opinion has little bearing on the matter. I like how somehow Baron Fellows was like, now Mary's opinion is the most important. Like, because it, <laughs> yeah. it was this like, just quick turn. Like, all of a sudden Lord Grantham is as pliant as like a college freshman in a keg. <laughs> Mary asks if Lord Grantham really minds. He says he doesn't, but he thinks it's crackers. Crackers. Oh my. <laughs> Which brings us to the first of our two recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our resident artistic gymnast, Tom. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. Always love an artistic gymnast reference. Incidentally, I think we've talked about this before, but that is a reference to the show, Make It or Break It, uh, which stars the guy who played Spargo in right. Upstairs, Downstairs, The New Batch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whose name I can't re- It's Neil something. No. Yeah. I keep wanting to say like Neil like Blomquist, you know, but I think there's that's not that many the guy who did District Nine. There's not that many Spargos in cinema. You can probably track it down. <laughs> it's that movie by the Coen Brothers, right? <laughs> Spargo about a murderous chauffeur. <laughs> okay, so today I am talking about George Romney, Lady Hamilton, and a little bit about Joshua Reynolds as well. Ooh, yes. Uh, so George Romney, the guy I like. <laughs> As is he related to Mitt Romney? He is. Oh! Yeah, Mitt Romney is descended from George Romney's grandfather. Mm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, they are some very distant Boy, cousins. I wonder what it's like to know, like, who the people were that came before you. I know, right? Mine's like, I don't know, probably, like, some potato farmers <laughs> and some bootleggers, like... Yeah, like, you know... I, like, one of, like, the like farthest back my family tree goes is to, like, my great-great-uncle Ben Anakin, who was a priest and also ran a still out of the church. So... <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, I know we've got somebody that, like, somebody's tracked down people going back to France and Germany and my family, but I don't know who they are. Yeah, we have a whole binder of it. Yeah, I know. They didn't seem super important, though. No, they were just I mean, like, I guess if we had important relatives, we'd, like, know about it. Right, and we would have names that represented, like, tracts of land somewhere yeah. rather than meaning Taylor and something that we don't know. I feel like I learned it one time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It means Kelly is great. That's what it means. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll drink to that. So George Romney was raised in a cottage called High Cockin in Barrow in Furness. Shut your <laughs> poor mouth. He was not. He was. Which Say that again. High Cockin in a village called Barrow in Furness. <laughs> that sounds like a disco song about Thomas. Barrow in Furness. <laughs> yes, which I only mentioned to make fun of England. Great. Oh, it's not even in Scotland? No, no, no. It's it's in England. Although it is like far northern England in Cumbria. Okay, I was going to say that name sounds extremely Scottish. So it's it's farther north 
even than uh, Downton. It's it's <gasps> northwest of Yorkshire. Lots of places have a north. Indeed. So he had artistic talent from a young age, did an apprenticeship, and in 1756, he got married. Uh, in 1762, he went to London. His family did not accompany him. Uh, he continued supporting them financially. His family as in like his wife and stuff? His wife and two children. Oh. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Uh, the daughter died a year later, but the son uh, survived as far as Wikipedia knows. Uh, and Wikipedia knows all. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she never joined him in London. He supported her financially, but uh, didn't often visit. So the Shakespeare model. Yes, indeed. Right down to the dying child. <laughs> uh, so down in London, he uh, had a painting called The Death of General Wolf, which was a pretty common subject for paintings at the time. General Wolf dying in the Battle of Quebec. I was going to say, oh, just generals dying? No, specifically General Wolf dying? Yeah. yeah, well, it was a key, that was a key battle that kind of won the French and Indian War and made Canada British. And he was very heroic in it and died in it. So, you know, it was. How did he die? Uh, just standard you know, battle injury. Like, oh, I thought maybe it was like on a horse or something. I don't think so. It may have been on a horse. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, much as the death of Admiral Nelson would become a popular subject for paintings, uh, but we'll get to Admiral Nelson. Oh, I bet we will. <laughs> like everybody who's read the Tuesday next books is like, <gasps> yeah, I got you guys. Ford fanatics. <laughs> right. So yeah, that painting was entered in the Royal Society of Arts and uh, won second prize, although, although the prize award was reduced from 50 guineas to 25 guineas under shady circumstances, which friends believed was due to some sort of manipulation by Joshua Reynolds. <gasps> uh, whether this is true or not, it is true that Romney, and Rem- Romney did not like Joshua Reynolds at all for the rest of his life. Is Joshua Reynolds related to Reynolds' rap? <laughs> that I cannot say. Uh, Joshua Reynolds was the guy of, of the era. He, he sounds attractive. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was the big name. Uh, and in 1768, he founded the Royal, uh, the Royal Academy of Arts, I believe, uh, splitting off from the Royal Society of Arts. And Romney never joined it, despite being asked, uh, but he was never invited to join, and he never asked, or he was often asked to display there, but he was never invited to join, and he never asked to join. He said that a good artist should succeed without joining. It sounds like he had a very rich inner life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in 1770, he exhibited at the Chartered Society of Artists rather than the Free Society of Artists. So, like, okay, there was, like... This one Royal Academy of Arts and then like it, like Joshua Reynolds split off to that to form the Chartered Society of Artists. So the people that were left behind started calling it the Free Society of Artists. Then in 1768, Reynolds split off that one and founded the new one that he made. So then there was like four different ones, some of which Joshua Reynolds had been associated with. It was very confusing. Like on, in a certain, like, look. I understand how this happens because mm-hmm. it's, you're like, oh, I'm going to have this club. Then all of a sudden, all these people that you don't want in the club are there and you're like, bye. Yeah. Um, but that's also like, you know, come on, Joshua Reynolds, you should have had a tighter hand in membership. Right. Like if you didn't like what was going on, like screw you, dude. Yeah. And then all the cool people leave and all the people that are still there are like, well, we're still awesome. We're going to call ourselves the free society of artists now. And yeah, I mean, it was all very people's front of Judea. He eventually got enough money to do a tour of Italy, which he always planned to do and, you know, study art Like at there. the Olive Garden. <laughs> 
Right. It was very similar. He loved the breadsticks. <laughs> <laughs> well, how else are you going to learn life is beautiful <laughs> if you don't go to Italy? That's true. Uh, and he did some, I've actually seen some other paintings that were inspired by that. Uh, I, I saw a bunch of art a few weeks ago, so I'm all like. In New York. Yeah. In, in the New- Frick collection. Right. And don't also. Bury the, don't hide your light under a bushel, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he came back. He was in debt, uh, both from the tour and also because his <laughs> uh, brother, who was described as artistic but dissolute, uh, so he was kind of saddled with his debts as well. And like syphilis, uh, I assume. <laughs> You know, I assume it was either syphilis or sodomy. Yeah. <clears throat> or just, just standard issue uh, drunkenness. Yeah, no, that's always always I a good always fallback. I always think of a dissolute as somebody who's drunk first and foremost. Right. And any <clears throat> other vices are like, you know, ancillary. We can all assume gin was involved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he got some commissions, including from uh, the Duke of Richmond was sort of his entree because he had trouble getting into like the top circles because he never joined Joshua Reynolds mm-hmm. society. Uh, but he did start to make some uh, contacts up there. And finally, in 1782, he met Lady Hamilton, who became his muse. Were they boning? Uh, unclear, I would say probably, but I'm going to get to Lady Hamilton next. Okay. So I'll just wrap up George Romney real quick, which is that uh, he was, you know, Established at that point, successful generally for the rest of his life. And then in 1799, his health started to break down. So after 40 years, he went back to Cumbria and his wife nursed him for the last two years of his life. It's a real raw deal for his wife. Yes, it is. I hope she had like friends or a bridge club or something. Yeah, I mean, you know, she, you know, it's not like he was there being abusive, which was also yeah, a possibility that's at the a time. Good thing. So, but still, and he did, like, he man. did, he did apparently send money back, so. I guess there's worse things. Okay, so Lady Hamilton, who I was sort of vaguely aware of, but had never, you know, read her Wikipedia article. Like, wow, what a life she had. Uh, doy. Yeah. I'm so excited for this. Right. So. (laughs) Napoleon. (laughs) Yeah, so details of her early life are unclear. Uh, She was known to be working as a maid at age 12. (sighs) That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Just man, what a what a Horatio Alger tale. Yeah, Alger, algorithm. I think Alger. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then was working later. Moved to London, working as a maid there, and met a maid called Jane Powell, who wanted to be an actress. So they like sort of rehearsed together. And a little Ellen Love type scenario, huh? A little bit, yeah. And so she then wound wound up becoming a maid in the Drury Lane Theater in Covent Garden. Uh, that sounds like a better deal to me than working in a big house. Yeah. Because you know, uh, theater people will at least like pretend to be magnanimous to you. Right. Well, Wikipedia says, however, this paid little. But I'm like, was her other jobs paying much? Yeah. Hard to say. Uh, so <laughs> she then, this is where she gets into her real career. She started working as a model and dancer at the Goddess of Health or Temple of Health for a Scottish quack doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was it Scrooge McDuck? <laughs> Dr. Scrooge McDuck? <laughs> I'd like to think so. The establishment's greatest attraction was a bed through which electricity was passed, giving paying patrons mild shocks, which supposedly aided conception. So, yeah. I'm sorry no one can see my face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so now... <clears throat> Still only 15 years old, Emma met Sir Harry Featherstonhaw. Shut up. <laughs> she didn't. That is a made-up name. 
who hired her for several months as hostess and entertainer at a lengthy stag party at his country estate. A several months long stag party. She is said to have entertained Harry and his friends by dancing nude on the dining room table. Featherston Haw took Emma there as a mistress, but frequently ignored her in favor of drinking and hunting with his friends. Ew, weird. Yeah. She's right there, and she's naked. I know. But she did strike up a friendship with the dull but sincere Charles Greville, second son of the first Earl of Warwick and a member of Parliament, and uh, conceived a child by Featherston Haw at this time as well. He was pissed off at the unwanted pregnancy, but... Well, probably lying on that bed with electric shocks made her super fertile. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Should have thought of that. (laughs) So she winds up forming a romantic attachment to Greville, who was a bit closer to her in age, and she might have believed that he would end up marrying her, which was not going to happen. So yeah, he is the one that introduced her to George Romney because he was into her and he wanted a picture of her like sort of for himself because she was pretty. And George Romney began a, quote, lifelong obsession with her, uh, sketching her nude and clothed in many poses, which he used to create paintings in her absence. Uh, And he, I mean, he really did make a ton of paintings of her. It would be, you know, as a young woman, as Circe, as a Bacante, Mm -hmm. you know, holding a dog, the one I mentioned, and just, uh, you know, he just kept kept on painting her. You know how women are always holding dogs. Yeah. Actually, at this time they were, because dogs helped keep them warm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and other people, other artists would do the same thing. It became kind of a fashion. Uh, Vigée Lebrun, who was the French portraitist of the like marie antoinette Mm -hmm. and louis the 16th oh yeah yeah she also was holding a dog (laughs) yes i remember that painting (laughs) yeah yeah indeed uh so this actually got greville kind of annoyed he just wanted a picture for himself but now he was looking for a rich wife and there were paintings of his mistress all over town Right. Where's this miniseries? Uh, oh, I know. People want a strong female character. I know. This is incredible. Yeah. Come on, BBC, ITV, get on this. I'm no. I this is Jonathan great. Strange and Mr. Norell did well. I assume. I assume it did fine. Yeah. yeah. No, and I'm not done yet. Oh my god. So I know because she has. So Greville's like, I need to get rid of her. So he persuaded his uncle, Sir William Hamilton, who was the British envoy to Naples, to take her off his hands. And Sir William was like, well, this takes, you know, if Greville gets married rich, then I don't have to support him anymore. And uh, Greville suggested that Emma would make a very pleasing mistress. So, you know. So wait, was she still pregnant or did she get rid of it? She had the baby. Uh, it was raised by another couple and they, main- they maintained some contact okay. while she was still in England. Which, as we discussed, was uh, unusual mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because of the laws. Right. Or right. lack of the laws. Yeah. yeah. And Sir William was, uh, you know, well aware of her famous beauty. So he even agreed to pay the expenses for her journey to ensure a speedy arrival. Uh, he took interest, it says he took interest in her as another acquisition, and, uh, he needed a hostess for his salon as his wife had died, so he was like, this is great. Uh, so it was all worked out between Gravel and Hamilton. Uh, Emma, however, was not informed of this plan. What? Uh, Gravel just told her, why doesn't she take a prolonged holiday in Naples while Gravel was off on business? I love that Italy is the solution here, <laughs> as ever. Yeah. Got a problematic lady? Send her to Italy. Yeah. Just 
you know, pasta. Yeah. So she gets to Naples and Sir Hamilton is like, so you're my mistress now and Greville's marrying somebody else. I thought you might know, but no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but while she was in Naples, she developed you know sort of the 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 poses that she had done for romney she developed it into kind of her own thing she would uh, get clothes modeled after kind of italian peasant clothes and like just sort of do that like pose as different like greco-roman historical mm-hmm. things and people would be like "Ooh, that's nice and it, it you know it became kind of a fashion that uh, was she like kim kardashian in a way yeah i think that's- i feel like there's a better analogy like somebody who's more of a clothing designer than kim kardashian is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i don't know coco ice tea's wife <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but yeah it became a thing other people did it as well other uh female artists uh you know got into it so i'd it, say mary kate and ashley olsen but nobody wants to have sex with them anymore so right that's true uh you know apologies to anybody that does i guess i don't know no, listen we're not here to judge you <laughs> anyway she ended up marrying sir william hamilton uh and so eventually becoming lady hamilton when he became lord uh and yeah eventually she was friends with the king and queen of naples being married to the envoy and so uh they also hosted lord nelson when he came there to gather reinforcements against the french and uh one thing led to another (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and i mean that that story is kind of is is more well known and is pretty straightforward they uh fell in love and had an affair and everybody knew it and nobody seemed to be that upset like mm-hmm. uh he wrote effusively of emma to his increasingly estranged wife Fanny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, god. oh my god oh no yeah and <laughs> <laughs> dude like read the room yeah so you know, it was it was tough for Emma because after Hamilton died and then Lord Nelson was, you know, off being an admiral most of the time, she was was pretty much alone in Naples. And then after Lord Nelson died, she kind of went through the money she had left. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a bummer of an ending there. Yeah. Let's not focus on that. Let's not. Let's focus on this story of a loose woman made good. That's right. Like, man, what a climb. Yeah. What a climb. Yeah. She Holy became, wow. She was the head of English society in Naples. Let's have that musical also called Hamilton <laughs> about Lady Emma Hamilton. Like, yeah. come on. Mm-hmm. Then we don't even know who her parents were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, I need to find a biography of her post haste <laughs> to read. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. That was highly entertaining. No, I was, I wasn't, sh- I was like George Romney, eh, and then I got onto Lady Hamilton. I was like, oh. <laughs> Stop the <presses>. Down in <laughs> the servants' hall, Carson wants to know what's to stop the dirty, dirty general <laughs> public from stealing the odd first edition. Uh, and you know, they already lost the Gutenberg Bible, so. <laughs> right. Mrs. Hughes says Carson has a poor opinion of his fellow man. You were halfway through and it, yeah. I honestly, cousins, I think about this three times a day. <laughs> because now when I say, oh, for fuck's sake, internally, I say, oh, for fuck's sake. And it's great. But then like everything else. Yeah. At any rate, Carson says that his poor opinion of his fellow man is what life's taught him, which if you look at, you know, Charlie number two, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good he point. doesn't have a lot of, you know, positive examples to go yeah, on. That guy sucked. 
Bates doesn't see why anyone would pay good money for coming into the house. And Anna says, asks if he's not curious about how other people live and asks if he'd pay to see the private rooms of the king and queen. Bates says that they sleep in a bed, they eat at a table, so does he. Yeah, but their bed and their table are so much nicer than yours. Right. Like, so much nicer. Yeah, the problem is that Bates doesn't see why anyone would do that because he doesn't know how to be happy. That's also true. Yeah. I thought not being in prison would uh, reignite my zest for life. (laughs) Thomas supposes he wonders whether someone else is having a better time than he is, which would be my motivation. Right. Uh, and Carson says, that's what's dangerous. You think they must be having a better time than you want them not to. Then there's a guillotine in Trafalgar Square, which is a real lickety split. I know, but since 1792, mm-hmm. that's what people in Britain were saying anytime they wanted to keep, you know, the lower classes in line. Well, gee, maybe you might want to reconsider this whole monarchy thing then. <laughs> I don't know. Uh... Ever the optimist, says Mrs. Hughes. There we go. Yeah, that was good. All right, so I can do an impression of Mrs. Hughes <laughs> in three-word phrases only. <laughs> Daisy thinks all these houses should be open to the public. What gives them the right to keep people out? And I'm, and Carson says the law of property, right. which is what I was about to say. Mm-hmm. Molesley thinks it could be a good thing to let them enjoy fine things. Though then they'll ask why the Crawleys have them and they don't. Carson says he couldn't have put it better himself, I think sarcastically. Uh, since he literally just said that. Right. Thomas asks, why do the Crawleys have them? And then Carson cuts that off at the knees by asking how Thomas's job search is going. That's very similar to the way... Well, that is that a spoiler? Oh, I don't know. For that movie? I don't know. Sorry. Nothing happened! <laughs> Sorry about We that. were all never here! <laughs> Hopefully nobody will pick it up. In the Dower House, the Dowager asks Isabel why anyone would pay to see an ordinary house. Isabel says not everyone lives in a house like that. Because they're, like, they're even in the Dower House. (laughs) She's been to Isabel's house. Like, this is not a normal house. Yeah. The Dowager says, oh, roll up, roll up, see an actual table and chairs. (laughs) They're really fixated on the table and chairs. They really are. Also, uh, if those table and chairs are so ordinary, why didn't you save hundreds of pounds and buy actual ordinary tables and chairs? That's a really good point. Isabel says that people have always tipped the butler to look round a house. Even Elizabeth Bennet wanted to see Pemberley. Yeah. Uh, The Dowager says that that caused her a great deal of embarrassment if she remembers the novel correctly. Which I'm like, yes, but did you finish that novel? Because she got that D and that house. (laughs) Right. Although I I guess that the Dowager would think of that novel as the tragedy of Lady de Bourgh. Yeah, she really would. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, incidentally, as an ancillary plug, in a couple of weeks you'll be able to hear a story I wrote uh, an erotic <laughs> fan fiction on a podcast called Shipwreck uh, about Pride and Prejudice. My prompt was Mr. Collins. Uh, I went for the non-period appropriate approach because that had done well at the previous one, mm-hmm. but then everybody else was super period appropriate. Mm. And David Bowie is in mine. And people got <laughs> upset. Well, I'm like, he's no less of a gay icon now than he was when he was alive. This is true. You know, he's not getting any debtor. <laughs> That's also true. I know. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not a sentimentalist. Anyway. You were writing for the ages, not for I the present day. I was writing for the ages. I'm always writing for the ages. Mm-hmm. So the Dowager adds that Lord Grantham is still very ill, and Isabel says that he's on the mend. It's been a few weeks, and uh, McGee is competent. Uh, so great. The Dowager says, yes, she's competent in leading a revolution without turning a hair. 
why should your hair turn if you're leading a revolution? Like, yeah. you know, shellack that down. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen She's to you. got a maid. <laughs> oh, right. Backs. <laughs> yes. Even if no one else can see her. Isabel says, anyway, it's been agreed that they'll open the house, and Clarkson is grateful. The Dowager says that in that case, he has been weakened. Isabel prefers to think he's seen sense. The Dowager says that even after Lord Grantham's life was saved by a hospital being nearby, but Isabel points out that he would have been treated there even after York takes over, as Mertie pointed out. Mm -hmm. The Dowager asks, so how is Mertie? Isabel says, as he always is. The Dowager asks if Isabel is weakening, and Isabel says no, unconvincingly. More Dowager Countess and Murdabel! Yeah. Isomart! Yeah. This- I love them so, like, I love their dynamic, because, yeah. like, the Dowager and Murdy have been, like, acquainted right. for so long, mm-hmm. and then Isabel's in the mix. Yeah. That's ah, a great time. It is. Also, this is really interesting, because what I was expecting was for Lord Grantham's health scare to be the thing that right. changes the dowager's mind. Yeah. And here she is resolved as Double strongly down. as ever. Yeah. And I'm like, that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. In the library, Edith walks in and McGee asks, who was it? Presumably on the phone. <laughs> uh, it was Bertie. Hey. Who's going to be in London and wants to meet up with Edith. McGee suggests that she ask Bertie to stop by on his way back to Northumberland. Edith's like, yeah, sure. Why not? And Mary asks if he's worth it. And Edith snaps back as opposed to your car mechanic. <laughs> oh, sweet burn, Edith. <laughs> Branson says, I'm a car mechanic. Thank you. Are you? Uh, he's also a journalist, <laughs> uh, an Irish revolutionary, and a citizen of Boston. Yeah. And uncle to a m- monkey. <laughs> <laughs> monkey. <laughs> Never gets unfunny. <laughs> McGee says that it'll be the weekend that they're opening the house and uh, Bertie may have ideas about how to handle that. I don't know why he would, but... Well, he's an estate agent. Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, <laughs> so he and Mary have the same job. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Edith says that she will ask him. At Pig Farm, Daisy dusts a picture of William, who I guess she likes now. Well, it's easier to like your dead husband that you don't like when he's dead, I that, think. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And he netted you a farm. Yeah. Mason looks at it with her. Daisy says she should go and she'll be back tomorrow. Mason says she shouldn't feel she has to come every day. She should work for her exams and asks if she's nervous about them because he would be. She says she does know the information. The question is just whether she can summon it up when the time comes. Mason asks where she's taking them and will be at the school and Molesley set it up. Mason says that she owes Molesley a lot. Daisy agrees but says that he has enjoyed it too. Mason remembers that he has a note for Patmore. It's a thank you note. Daisy says she knows that he's thankful, but Mason says it never hurts to say so. I agree. I'm a big proponent of thank you notes, everybody. <laughs> Daisy says that he doesn't want to encourage Patmore. She's too curious for her own good. And why doesn't Daisy make any sense anymore? I don't like. Why should she care if he like? She's the one who wanted him there. Yeah. And so he is now. You know. If she weren't the, you know, assistant cook, mm-hmm. he wouldn't necessarily have relationships with all the people below stairs, but he might. They yeah. all live in the same village. Mm-hmm. And, like, did he really have no friends over at the retconned place that he also <laughs> lived? Like, right. I don't know. And it's just, like, 
I, it's so weird. Yeah. And this seems very out of character for her. Well, it's, and it's not even exactly, out, I mean, cause she's always been kind of weird and petty, but it was always for reasons that were understandable. Mm-hmm. But this is just, where is this, what, what is, what is her motivation here? Yeah. What, yeah, just bizarre. No, I mean, he's not part of the ruling class and neither are any of the people he's trying to befriend. Yeah. You could get a quorum and take the <laughs> castle. Anyway, Mason's like, would you just give her the note? You weirdo. Carson brings Lord Grantham breakfast in bed, and uh, Lord Grantham says that Carson should have let one of the footmen bring it, since that's basically their job. Or, you know, Mr. Bates? No. Isn't that really his job? I don't know. Because Baxter always brings McGee's tray. That makes sense. Although I guess Lord Grantham doesn't generally take breakfast in bed. Right. So, who knows? He's like a married woman. (laughs) (laughs) Carson says that he wanted to see how Lord Grantham was doing, and he closes the door and adds that he thought Lord Grantham might like some of this. A bottle that he pulls from his pocket. Lord Grantham says, crumbs, that looks frightening. I feel like Julian Fellows was gifted, like, the Christmas before he wrote all of these with, like, a new, you know, 1920s British (laughs) slang dictionary. Yeah. He said, oh, crackers. (laughs) Carson says it's a little Chateau Chasplin. Yeah. So uh, it also sounds frightening. Yeah. Like I don't think if you're if you're a winery a vineyard don't put spleen in your name yeah don't do it just not even as a joke not <laughs> right. even ironically <laughs> Lord Grantham is excited and Carson says it was a favorite of Lord Byron's who also makes an appearance on the shipwreck podcast mm-hmm. about uh, Downton I'm sorry about but, Pride and Prejudice right. Lord Grantham says that Lord Byron knew a thing or two about <laughs> wine and women as well. He wants to know if Carson... Wait, did you say this? No, no, no. Okay. Lord Grantham says it. Lord Grantham wants to know if Carson brought a woman in his pocket, too. Uh, Shut up, Lord Grantham. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. No, that can't be right. He wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have said that. Sorry. Okay, that was... I thought you were saying the other thing. Well, my attempt at witticism is run aground. It's okay. I really mostly enjoy your recap. (laughs) I know. Lord Grantham smells it and then sighs, and he says he has to say no. Sacrifices have to be made for his health, and he has to accept that he cannot go on as he used to. So this is the opposite of the plot in Roseanne, where Dan has a heart attack, <laughs> and then he like keeps sneaking candy. But then that wound up being a fantasy anyway, so this it's is, very weird. This is the opposite of the show of Roseanne. That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carson's sorry to hear that he has to make these change changes and speaking of which lord grantham uh says oh by the way remember before when i said we need to simplify the household uh because we've just talked about it so far carson says that the new maids are cheap because they stay in the village and they only have one groom and a stable boy do they even have horses i guess they do they had to hunt yeah lord grantham uh says they still have an under butler and two footmen and carson says that thomas has genuinely been looking for other employment lord grantham asks if they can help somehow to get him out of their house Mm -hmm. carson says he'll speak to him lord grantham wants to know what carson thinks of the open house Carson thinks it's a dangerous precedent, though he doesn't know that it helps for him to say so. Lord Grantham says that it's an idiotic scheme, and Carson says it adds up to the same thing, but it's too late to stop it. Lord Grantham agrees, but doesn't know what they can possibly show the public. McGee's knitting uh, their cat pillows, and she's very proud of them. Yeah, they're embroidered. Marion the bath like that is Carson thinks that went too far and I agree yeah don't talk about your adult daughter in the bath right like like what are you Donald Trump right ew 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 let's move on okay ew you're fired <laughs> well I know. just let's move on Patmore puts vegetable peelings in a garbage pail and finds the note from Mr. Mason there 
Daisy says she... Good job, genius. She wondered where she'd put it and says it must have fallen in the rubbish by mistake. Padmore asks why it had been opened, and Daisy says, had it? Like, not cool, Daisy. What? What what is wrong with you? So much. Yeah. The ghost of Baxter puts McGee's nightgown on, and McGee asks, whatever happened to that man? (laughs) Uh, Presumably meaning that guy whose name I've already forgotten. uh, Coyle. Coyle, after Brendan Coyle. Uh, Baxter says that he was sentenced to 10 years and McGee says, my goodness, like he's a freaking jewel thief. Like, yeah. what did you think was going to happen to him? McGee Community has, service? <laughs> McGee has no idea what happens in these situations. Even though she's had two servants in prison? Yeah. They were just servants. Yeah. Well, they weren't her servants. Yeah. Baxter's glad in a way that she didn't have to testify him. So that makes one of us. Yeah. Like, does she have any feelings that aren't in a way? <laughs> oh, man. McGee says goodnight and goes into the bedroom. Lord Grantham asks what time it is. McGee says it's late and to go back to sleep. Lord Grantham thinks that they should ask the dowager to see him. She must be feeling left out. And McGee says that her mind is on other things. And she hopes that his operation will have persuaded people to McGee's side. Lord Grantham. The dowager's side is what the dowager. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of pronouns. There are. Yes. Sorry. Lord Grantham says that he would have died if he'd had to go to York. But McGee says that they'd still operate at the local hospital in an emergency. Lord Grantham says that they shouldn't make this conflict worse. But McGee says it must get worse before it gets better. At Bates Cottage, Bates suggests a fire. He says it's a bit indulgent, but we've earned it. Is it? Have I they? I, I don't know. Like, isn't that just how your place gets heated? Yeah. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know. But maybe I almost. Tr- I almost considered my segment being like, "Why were fires an indulgence?" <laughs> Anna says she's going to bed. Bates asks if she's feeling ill. If so, she must tell him. They're finished with her keeping him in the dark. They're not finished with him threatening her creepily, though. That will never be over. Oh yeah. She says she's not ill exactly, and Bates asks if she's told Mary, but Anna doesn't like to bother her. Bates says to bother her. First thing, she says she could tell Dr. Clarkson, but Bates says she's seeing Ryder or nobody. Anna says she can't expect Mary to keep shelling out, shelling out, but Bates says that he'll pay. He has savings, and they're selling a house. Anna says yes, so we can buy another house. But Bates says now she's being silly, and to uh, talk I to Mary I tomorrow— fiscally responsible yeah dr clarkson is a real doctor he was a better doctor than that fancy ass who killed sybil right yeah i what's why not see i mean even if he's like boy this is super weird she can go to the other guy for a second opinion give it a shot yeah and he's right you don't have to take a train ride while pregnant and possibly ill come on ride the train (laughs) and ride it choo choo yeah. Anyway, Anna's opinion doesn't matter. Bates is decided. So. Carson and Hughes leave the Carson cottage, and Mr. Carson says he wouldn't mind having breakfast there sometimes. Mrs. Hughes doesn't think that anyone would object, but then who's going to, like, crack the whip back at the house? Yeah. Thomas? Nobody cracks the whip anymore, Kelly. <laughs> Carson asks how Hughes is at making coffee. She says it's not very hard, but Carson says there's an art to it, and she might like to have a word with Mrs. Patmore. And Mrs. Hughes grits her teeth and says, of course, I would poison him at this point. (laughs) Just, no. like, Mr. Bates, how did that poison pie work? (laughs) I wouldn't know, Mrs. Hughes. (laughs) Meet me outside. (laughs) 
Uh, Carson adds that he'd like to bring things up a little more to standard and wonders if they could have the hall boy do some polishing and have a maid make the bed. Uh, those are not your resources to allocate. Like, they're not. Uh, you know, what Lord Grantham doesn't know about won't hurt him. That is not Carson's typical, you know, yeah. approach. Remember when they almost fired Mr. Bates for stealing that wine? I and do. And for some reason didn't fire Thomas for actually stealing it? Yeah, uh, for, uh, well, I'm assuming blackmail was involved there. It usually is. Yeah. I feel like you could make a flowchart about Downton <laughs> Abbey where every option leads to blackmail. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Hughes asks if, you know, her housekeeping isn't good enough either. Carson says that it's not bad. He didn't mean that, but he likes those sharp corners. And Mrs. Hughes is like, oh, well, I'm glad I'm not bad. Like, it's just, also, it's weird, though, that she wouldn't have sharp corners. I mean, I guess yeah. she hasn't been in practice necessarily. I mean, you, you know, know I would imagine as housekeeper, a maid makes your bed. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but she would, you know, she started as a maid. No, that's you know? true. No, I mean, I, I get it. I don't know. I guess it's not, you know, hospital corners aren't like riding a bike. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. In her bedroom, Mary wishes Anna had told her before. In <laughs> Anna says it's nothing, but Mary wants to know what Bates says. Why? Who cares? Sisters, do it for yourselves. That is not Lady Mary's way. Anna explains and says that it seems an extravagance to her. She's happy to talk to Clarkson. But Mary says they should go to London. She's sure Clarkson could manage, but she feels like a jaunt. Anna says, and stay the night. So she knows what Mary means by jaunt. I mean, they've been through a lot together. They have. They've had various, you know, crazy sexual escapades. (laughs) They have. Mary says that, yeah, they'll stay with Rosamond and to pack something medium smart. I really want to see Mary's, like, scale of, like, (laughs) what clothes get what description. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Perfectly slovenly. (laughs) And she will make some calls. At Isabel's house, McGee enters saying that she got Isabel's message. I also want to say, clothing-wise, every person is crushing it this episode. Yeah. Even Isabel looks amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, all of our, like, criticisms about what the fuck are these people wearing, they look awesome all the servants do too like Mm -hmm. we see like mrs hughes and daisy in some you know casual wear and like so great yeah like i love the coat that mary is about to wear when they go down to london i love that amazing uh, yeah oh so great yeah um and i think the scene where isabel was in the dowager's Mm -hmm. house um she had a really smart hat on and a great dress Mm -hmm. like that was like my favorite thing that she's worn i think the whole show yeah the of this season Uh uh-huh uh-huh Isabel offers McGee coffee, and McGee says uh, she seems like she could use some smelling salts. Miss, Mr. Clarkson. <laughs> Dr. Clarkson is there, and he says that it is serious. He has received a letter from the Board of Governors, and they will be combining with York. Okay. <laughs> right. So did the board, you know, their, you know, their local board not actually have any say in what happened because well, they or, don't appear to have taken a vote or was the local or did all those people that weren't talking in the previous scenes just get together have a quorum and vote and you know because i mean you would think isabel and clarkson would have been there but the, the dowager is kind of ceremonial president yeah. i you know no, i don't i don't know and it's it, it's a bit and they it's certainly- the only, it's not exactly a sour note in this episode, which I'd otherwise like just give like a solid A. Mm-hmm. But like, did we just spend five episodes arguing about this? 
for completely pointless reasons. Yeah, it is a bit... And that's not addressed at any point in this episode. Right. Like, how that decision was handed down. Yeah. It just happens. Or to what... It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just weird. Yeah, anyway. McGee says, as we knew they must. And I'm like, do you mean as we knew they must, as in you knew that what you thought didn't matter? Or... <laughs> right. Uh, Dr. Clarkson agrees and says that he will remain in his post as, you know, head doctor. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Crawley will stand as almoner, but they want the president to be <gasps> McGee. What? She made a very good impression on uh, the board of governors in her trip to York. And okay, McGee. So I guess it is the York board. Yeah, it is the York board. Huh. In the York board. <laughs> okay. In the York board. <laughs> we're just, we're just cranking them out, guys. Apparently we're almost so. at the end. I gotta leave you with some good shit. Um, McGee is like, uh, what about the Dowager? And Dr. Clarkson says she is to be allowed to step down after many years of noble service. McGee sits down and says, golly, they've sacked the captain. This is serious. This yeah. is a very important situation in which to invoke the Sybil Crawley Memorial Golly. Indeed. Isabel says they couldn't have someone in the new management who thinks that the new regime is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and McGee asks if Dr. Clarkson supports this. And Isabel says that he put McGee's name forward. Uh, Dr. Clarkson says the Dowager isn't as young as she once was and that she would essentially be willing the system to fail. Right. And McGee agrees. And Clarkson adds that he wants the new president involved in running things and the Dowager wouldn't have agreed to that, you know, what with her busy schedule of <laughs> sitting around complaining. <laughs> McGee asks if she's supposed to replace the Dowager Countess and get more responsibility. And Isabel says they both think she'd be marvelous. McGee wants to know who's going to tell the Dowager. <laughs> Dr. Clarkson says that the board will write once they hear back from him. Yeah, and Clarkson's like, the new president, bye. <laughs> <laughs> McGee says that she has to talk to Lord Grantham about it. And Dr. Clarkson says they don't want somebody to come up with another name. And McGee says, honestly, it might be easier if they did. Yep. Uh, it's true. Somebody without a family. <laughs> Mary wraps up a phone call saying, don't tell him that she wants to be the surprise guest. Branson happens by and asks if this is the urgent business calling her to town. Mary says it's not the only thing. Branson says it's getting serious. Uh, anyway, Mary says... You know, when things get serious, you don't lie about coming to a dinner. (laughs) Mary says that dinner with Evelyn at the Criterion isn't very serious. Good job, Mary. (laughs) Edith overhears and says she used to go to the Criterion with Gregson. Mary asks if she has to put a damper on every restaurant in London. You know, you didn't even care about that dude. I know. So, like, and Edith, like, wasn't, like, you know, she wasn't, like, wandering around Bertha Rochester style, <laughs> right. like, gnashing her teeth. I know. She and was just like, oh, yeah, I used to go there all the time. Yeah, and as she, she's like, no, I was just saying I have very happy memories of it. But Mary don't care. <laughs> Branson asks Mary to send his love, and Edith says to send Evelyn her love to as who, well. To who, Evelyn? Yeah, apparently. You don't even know that guy. I, yeah. Like, maybe you picked him up at the station. <laughs> Branson says that, uh, yeah, and Branson says to send love to Evelyn or whoever else might be there. you're so mad mary dares branson to come with her and so he agrees and he'll go pack but they have to be back in time to prepare for the opening mary says he'll only be gone for a day and asks if edith can manage without them edith says that she can manage without mary for as long as she wants so shouldn't you move to london edith she's working on it all right every decision takes months the downton abbey story (laughs) 
that's just a soap opera convention. Well, right. Mary rolls her eyes and leaves, and Branson invites Edith to come along, but Edith says that she doesn't want to watch Mary flirt with her oily driver. Matthew Good is not oily <laughs> in the classist sense, nor the car mechanic sense. Agreed. Branson asks if she can be pleased for Mary. Edith says she's as pleased for Mary as Mary would be for her. That's a solid point. Yeah, Branson's like a touche. In the upstairs hall, Thomas is carrying George, and Mary says not to let George wear him out. And Thomas says he's all right. George says, guys, yeah. George, in one of his ubiquitous sailor suits, mm-hmm. says that he was cheering up Mr. Barrow. And Mary asks if Thomas needs cheering up. Thomas says we all do sometimes. And Mary tells George to let Thomas get on with his work. She goes. George asks for another ride. And Thomas picks him up and airplanes him around, yeah. which is adorable. It's super adorable. And also... Mary and Thomas seem very well suited to one another in terms of an employer-employee type relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would like to see that go somewhere. I don't know what that looks like. You know, she obviously has extremely uh, strong loyalty to Carson. Right, right. But Thomas is, you know, he's a very, like, modern creature. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they've both kind of been forced into these weird roles that they Mm -hmm. weren't expecting. I don't know. Yeah. I just want them to, like, you know, have a mentorship or something. Yeah. You know, like, peer mentorship. (laughs) Lord Grantham is lying in bed. Mary comes in and says that she's leaving and taking Branson. Lord Grantham envies her. He is sick of his room. Mary says that Thomas was looking glum, and Lord Grantham explains how he and Carson feel that he's the obvious candidate to get rid of. Mary asks if they'll sack him. Lord Grantham says they're hoping that he'll find another job. Mary supposes that explains it and says that Thomas is very sweet with the George with George and the girls. Lord Grantham says when George is older, they can ask him back. And Mary says goodbye. I don't know what that means. That's a weird scene. Yeah. I mean, I guess to work. I. But why when George is older? What? You know, because then George will be, you know, head of the estate. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, it's a silly line. Yeah. It is a silly place. <laughs> Out front in her fabulous coat, yeah. Mary tells Bates not to worry about Anna. She's sure it'll be nothing. And Anna says she'll call him on the telephone after her appointment. Bates tells Mary he's grateful, but Dr. Ryder will send him the bill. Mary says Dr. Ryder was her idea, so she'll continue paying. But Bates says it was a good idea and he can pay his own way. Mary says they won't fight about it, which isn't exactly a concession. <laughs> Anna asks if Bates will miss her, and he says he misses her when she's out of sight, let alone in London, which I find creepy and weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, you know, because it's like, uh, you know, I say dumb crap to you. I know. But it's just like from him is just like unsettling. Every breath you take. <laughs> in the car, Mary insists again that she won't let Ryder send him the bill, and Branson says Bates' pride is more important than money, and Anna thanks him for uh, aiding and abetting her abusive relationship. Yes. In the Carson cave, Carson says he doesn't think they'll have a footman in 20 years. He's talking to Thomas. And Edith already manages without a maid, and if Anna left, he doesn't think they'd replace her. But who would help Mary carry corpses places? <laughs> She'll just Hello, ha- I need a new corpse girl. <laughs> She'll just have to start working out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, he, so it's not just Thomas that's, you know, in trouble. But Thomas says that he is the first... Carson says he's an underbutler and that's part of a lost world, which he regrets, but he doesn't think that Thomas is a creature of today. I can't remember if underbutler is a real thing. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, you know, it's part of a lost world, like Jurassic Park. <laughs> oh, man. When's Jeff Goldblum going to get here? <laughs> Say, uh, uh, is, that a, is, that a, is that a Reynolds? <laughs> hey, hey. 
McGee. <laughs> that was Bricker's position. <laughs> Say, uh, uh, hey, I'm uh, writing a book. <laughs> It's not a great Jeff Goldblum impression. No, it's it's not. I wasn't going to say anything. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> really letting you down. We'll get it someday. I mean, there's only a couple episodes left. You wait. We'll do the final Christmas special. Dozens of impressions. All of them sparkling. <laughs> In preparation for my one-woman show. Downton, we hardly knew ye. Anyway, uh, yeah. So we said Thomas is a creature of... He doesn't think Thomas is a creature of today, and Thomas says, and you are. Carson doesn't think that Downton could be run without a butler, so yes. Hughes comes in and says that they're busy, but Thomas says they're finished, or at least he is, and leaves. Carson says that he thought they might have dinner in the cottage, and perhaps she can get advice from Patmore. It doesn't have to be complicated. And Hughes says, that's a relief. So, Top Ramen? <laughs> Fish sticks? It's like when my dad used to cook for us when I was a kid. He would just make everything in the freezer. <laughs> I was like, how have you been like, you know, you, you 15 years of marriage and, you know, parenthood not once noticed like the basic like protein, vegetable, grain structure that our mother puts in front of us. You kids like food, right? <laughs> it was pizza, breadsticks, mac and cheese, three vegetables, fruit cocktail, all in front of us. Boy, a feast it was. Pie crust, clothes, Tom Collins mix. <laughs> In the schoolroom. In the schoolroom. <laughs> uh, the teacher, who surely has a name. Right, but I have not been able to remember or bother to look it up. I don't know. Uh, he tells Mosley that he'll give him the date for the exams when he has it. Mosley says he's excited, and the teacher asks if uh, Daisy can be spared from the house, and the exams will take a whole day. Mosley says everybody thinks she's doing the right thing, especially McGee, who, as far as I know, has literally never expressed an opinion about Daisy. Right. Like, maybe... But even when Daisy was actively involved, she was like, what? Right. Because Daisy was attempting to get herself fired, and McGee was like, huh? I'm sorry, who? (laughs) The teacher hopes they appreciate Mosley's role, and Mosley says that he missed the boat on his calling, so he wants to help others catch it. He starts to leave, and Teach asks what Mosley would say to helping out the Teach. Not necessarily teaching, but he likes Mosley's enthusiasm and would like to harness it. And I'm like, are you coming on to him? (laughs) What is this? Mosley doesn't know what to say. Teach says he'll devise a test for Mosley as well, mostly just general knowledge. So it's like the jeopardy of Downton. (laughs) In his bedroom, Lord Grantham greets the Dowager and says she didn't have to come. He's miles better. And the Dowager says that she assumed it was a good sign that she hadn't been summoned in haste. She says that she's glad of the chance to talk about opening the house, but McGee says it's all been fixed by Mary. Dowager says she doesn't know why anyone would come, but since they are, should she cut a ribbon when the doors are opened? She says that as hospital president, she ought to have a formal role since they're fundraising for the hospital. Lord Grantham doesn't think they need a ceremony. The doors open at nine, and who wants to get up that early? The Dowager says it wouldn't kill her, but the Lord Grantham says it might kill him. The Dowager says to let her know what they decide. Uh, the patients are her priority. As president, she is their representative on Earth. And she thinks that Lord Grantham's collapse will have changed people's minds about the hospital scheme. But don't worry, she'll be magnanimous in victory. Uh, and Lord Grantham and McGee look at each other like, eh. wah, 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 wah. <laughs> 
In the servants' hall, Mr. Carson asks if Mrs. Hughes is ready for dinner. Mrs. Hughes hopes he isn't expecting a banquet. He says he's expecting a delicious dinner from the fair hands of his beautiful wife. So I guess, you know, sex is going fine for them. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes says there's a threat in there somewhere. <clears throat> See, four words. Yeah, too, too much. Man. Down the table, Baxter asks if Mosley is taking the test with Daisy. Mosley says yes, but not the same test. Baxter asks why, and Mosley says that the teach wasn't specific. Baxter asks if he'll take it. Mosley says yes, if Carson gives him the time off. So, yes. In the hall, Thomas tells Andy they'll meet after dinner in his room, where the light is better. (laughs) Mrs. Patmore overheard them. Uh Uh-oh. After all their careful, prejudicial (laughs) advice... Andy just wants to get a better look at Thomas's peen. <laughs> in Grantham House, Anna comes in and Mary says, oh, she thought she'd have to dress herself. I don't think it is Grantham House. Because Rosamond's Isn't, house is not Grantham House. Oh, you're Grantham right. House. You're right. That's my mistake. Sorry. Yeah. Just want to make sure, you know, our oracle doesn't, yeah. like, correct us. <laughs> at Marmaduke House. Um <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, Mary's like, I thought I'd have to dress myself while oh you were at God. the doctor. Oh my God, this whole thing was your effing idea. Yeah, but Anna says she's sorry and she just couldn't get a bus. Mary asks what the diagnosis was and Anna says... <laughs> the bus was hitching a rapist. <laughs> didn't get on it. <laughs> it was doing important work. <laughs> uh, the diagnosis was standard pregnancy pain is something to do with the ligament. He gave her exercises and suggested a warm towel, but it's basically just a warm her... warm towel where? Uh, wherever she sees fit. Uh, just just a warm towel in the room to look at. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the pain is just her body adjusting to being pregnant. Mary doesn't think they'd invented ligaments when she was pregnant with George, uh, which is just the sort of thing my mother would say. Um, Anna says that George makes her laugh, uh, and he rules Thomas with a rod of iron. Mary says that Thomas is sweet with the children and wonders if he's trying to get in with the family by doing it. But Anna thinks he's genuine. She doubts he'll have children of his own. Wink! <laughs> and he enjoys the company of the children. Mary says that marigolds fit in well. And Anna says, well, they're all... Mary asks, they're all what? Anna says, they're all clever and pleasant. Wait. Oh, right. Because Anna had seen right. Pigman with Marigold on the train. I kept wondering like, why she seemed to know something. Yeah. It's like her knowing about that and then Baxter like knowing about Bates' ticket were things that I just like completely <laughs> yeah. like, didn't remember at all. Yeah. Uh, Mary asks what Anna was going to say. Anna says just what she did say and asked if Matthew Good has found out about tonight. Mary says no and supposes she should have jumped out of a cake. Anna says in that case, she would have had to wait for the pudding before seeing him. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) In their bedroom, McGee tells LG that she must give Clarkson an answer or the Dowager Countess will find some other way. They notice Baxter is there. (laughs) (laughs) I've been taking lessons from Andy. (laughs) McGee says it's a secret and Baxter says, of course, and leaves. And I'm like, "Uh, isn't everything that you say in front of them a secret? What is even happening? (laughs) Lord Grantham says that was high risk. McGee says Baxter won't talk, which is true. She didn't even testify against that guy. Yeah, and she's been dead for 40 years. (laughs) I'm the only one who can see her. Anyway, it'll be public news soon. Lord Grantham supposes McGee wants to accept, and she does, but not if it'll upset Lord Grantham, which is stupid, because he doesn't care about anything anymore. Right. 
He says the dowager will be upset when she's deposed, though McGee being the usurper will make it worse. McGee asks, what if that wasn't a factor? And Lord Grantham says it will be too much for McGee. It sounds like Carson wants her to actually work there. <laughs> uh mcgee says so she's had a career already bringing up their daughters and now they don't need her especially the dead one yeah. uh lord grantham says they still do and doesn't she want to rest he says she's not like isabel she doesn't need a job mcgee doesn't think isabel needs a job she wants one and so might mcgee she says she's not old and lord grantham didn't say she was mcgee says didn't you no and it's like remember how happy she was when they were running downton as mm-hmm. the hospital yeah absolutely and i mean you know she got to fight with isabel she loved that mm-hmm. and she won all the time mm-hmm. and she can still win all the time yeah she's a budding dowager countess herself indeed i mean she literally will be one right eventually yeah she might have been one already if that ulcer had gone wrong <laughs> At the Criterion, Branson and Mary walk to their table, and Branson says that if Anna says she doesn't know anything, that he believes her. Mary says that if Branson knows something and doesn't tell her, she'd see it as a betrayal. Oh, about Marigold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was like, what the... Yeah. Warm towel! That's it! (laughs) The code word is warm towel. (laughs) Branson says, don't say that, and Mary says, so you are in on it. Uh, then Evelyn welcomes them, and Mary says they're quite a party. Evelyn introduces Lady Anne Ackland, Mrs. Dupper, and Mrs. McVeigh. Mary and Anne shared a governess, and Mary and Jill came out together. Don't know which one is Jill. Well, it's probably not the one named Anne. <laughs> right. This is like a Dr. Brain riddle. <laughs> Evelyn says that uh, she knows Matthew Good and Charlie Rogers, and Mary says they've met again since they met with Evelyn. Uh, and Evelyn introduces Branson. A lot of introductions. Mary, Matthew Good says that he's going to read lots into Mary wanting to be a surprise to him. As Mary sits, she says, A table full of singletons at our age. Well done. Uh, Dupper and or McVeigh says that they're all war widows. Mary says she's not a war widow. Which possibly the bitchiest thing anybody has said and the fact that the entire dinner party doesn't come to a screeching halt and they don't call the mater d over to slap mary about the face several times the war has not been over for very long yeah and they presumably at least liked their husbands right also like insofar as you're ranking widowhoods like war widow is better yeah they died then, serving then their country car, daydreamy car crash yeah. widow they died serving their country not driving like a twit <laughs> i just can't believe she said that i know like just wow no and they all like it is awkward for a second yeah but, like then they all just yeah move on yeah mary's just like oh good to see you again mr rogers and mr rogers says he hasn't been allowed to forget her because Matthew Good keeps talking about her. Mary says she didn't think he knew her well enough for that. Ew. She's asked if he, she asks if he's pleased with his progress this season, and he is, and him and Matthew Good will race in Brooklyn's. Mary correctly assumes that they will race in that car she saw. Matthew Good says that they'll get her interested in racing yet. Mary says they won't, but Branson says he's interested. So Matthew- Like, cool it, Branson. <laughs> he won't. Like, you were just, you know, coming on a little strong. Yeah. Matthew Good invites him to come. Branson says that he's not in London much, but Matthew Good says he's there now and invites him to come watch the race from the pits. Branson knows he'd enjoy it, so Mary says he should go if he wants. You're rich, dude. Matthew Good asks if Mary will come, and she says she doesn't keep her diary in her head. Ask her nearer the time. Uh, okay. Yeah. 
Carson Cottage. Carson asks how dinner's coming, and Mrs. Hughes brings in a plate. It's Glenvere smoked salmon from last night's upstairs dinner. Carson asks for lemon, but Hughes forgot them. Carson also says some horseradish would be nice, thin with sour cream. Hughes agrees, but they don't have any. Mrs. Hughes asks what they're drinking. Carson feels like they shouldn't drink since Lord Grantham can't, which is ridiculous. It is very ridiculous. He is not pregnant with your baby, dude. Mrs. Hughes points out that they're not suffering from a burst ulcer, but Carson would feel disloyal. Like, this guy honestly needs, like, cult-level deprogramming (laughs) to, like, get over his over-identification with Lord Grantham. Mm Mm-hmm. Mrs. Hughes asks if him being sober will make him grumpy. He doesn't think so. And he pushes his plate away and asks what's next. Mrs. Hughes says duck. This is like an elaborate meal for servants. Uh, yeah. Uh, Carson asks if the skin is crispy like Mrs. Patmore does it. And did she ask for her advice? Mrs. Hughes says they've certainly talked about what it's like cooking for Carson. <laughs> he bets Mrs. Patmore had a lot to say. And Mrs. Hughes says they both did. <laughs> At the Criterion, Branson asks if he should get a taxi. Matthew Matthew Goods says it's nice out. Why doesn't he walk back with them? Mary says they're staying in Belgrave Square. Matthew Goods says perfect. Branson's like, oh, that sounds nice. And then there's an awkward pause. And Branson's like, oh, yeah, I have some reading. I'll just get that cab then. (laughs) Rogers hopes that they meet again and says that Brooklyn's is very swanky these days. Mary says, how enchanting you make it sound. And then heads off with Matthew Good. As they walk along, Matthew Good hopes Mary comes to Brooklyn so he can see her. He knows she's not interested in racing. Mary says it's not only that she's not interested in racing, and finally <laughs> is like, you know, how I said I wasn't a war widow before. This is the kind of widow I am. And I'm a car widow. Matthew Good says he already knows and he understands that the car is her enemy, but it's his friend and he asks that she give it a second chance. After all, it's not like she's riding around in a handsome cab, which is like... A legitimate-esque point. Right. Um, but there's a huge difference between using a car for transportation and, like, using a car in one of the most dangerous scenarios you can ever put a car in. Yeah, like a car race is, by definition, you're almost crashing the whole time. Yeah. That's, yeah. Suddenly it starts raining and they duck into some weird covered alley and have this, a moment. In one of those ridiculous, like, thunderclap, immediate pouring rain things that... You know, fine. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> Does it? I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> uh, they have a moment there and they kiss and Mary asks if this is part of his plan to convince her. And he says, uh, she doesn't have to cut. Co- oh, she doesn't have to go to Brooklyn's. Plenty of drivers' wives never go re- near the racetrack. Mary raises her eyebrows and says, wives? <laughs> Matthew Good only meant that if they get involved, her being there is not compulsory. Mary asks if he wants her there to watch, and he says yes, only to be near her, but also probably, like, impress her, though. Right, dude? Mary says that this is moving much faster than she'd imagined. Okay, whatever. And Matthew Good knows he's not what she's after. His prospects are modest, and she's a a great catch. But he also happens to be falling in love with her. He thinks that sounds very feeble, and Mary thinks it's rather compelling. Yeah, dudes, just say that. It is so convincing every time. Yeah. You don't understand how much women have been conditioned to, like, only want your approval. No. Mary says the rain doesn't seem to be stopping. Shall they run for it? He says she's the boss. She says, Mona! (laughs) Long episode. Yeah, it is. Uh, Back at Marmaduke House, Branson asks if they got... (laughs) 
If they got caught in the rain, Mary says, not too badly. They had some pina coladas. If you like insulting widows (laughs) and getting caught in the rain. Uh, They dashed for cover. Branson says, how romantic. Mary asks why he's playing Cupid. It doesn't suit him. Uh, Branson says that it's because Baron Fellows couldn't think of anything for him to do this season. Now, he actually says that uh, Matthew Good is nice and mad about Mary and loves cars. Mary doesn't see how it would work, but Branson says that Matthew Good will have to settle down eventually. Why not at Downton? He's not as rich as yeah, Mary. Yeah, it's got down right in the name. <laughs> He's not as rich as Mary or Mary's child, but he is a gentleman. He offers Mary a drink. Mary asks for a tiny glass of whiskey and water. Branson- tiny? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Drink You're up. You're in London. <laughs> have a nice tot of gin. <laughs> Become dissolute. Branson asks when Edith's bow arrives. Mary says just in time to interfere with the opening. I don't think he's going to do anything. I know. Branson says he liked him when they met. But Mary says that he's boring to an Olympic degree. Well, you also think Edith is boring to an Olympic degree. And, like, don't you want her gone? Branson says that if Edith's happy, it improves things for everyone. Mary says that Edith is stupid for saddling herself with a child. And why would any man want to take her on now? And Branson pointedly says nothing. Speaking of which, Bertie walks along a road and Edith meets him in the car and explains that the car wouldn't start. Edith tells him to hop in and Bertie kisses her first. Edith says that feels nice and automatic, unlike their car. (laughs) Bertie asks if that's good and Edith says it is for her. At Isabel's, Bertie arrives with a young woman, says that he got Isabel's letter and wanted to discuss it. He introduces Miss Crookshank, who is engaged to Larry. Isabel saw that news in the papers, and Miss Cruikshank says she knows she's pushed into this meeting, but she wanted to meet Isabel. Isabel asks if Larry knows she's there, and Cruikshank says that she knows that Isabel haven't Isabel and Larry haven't seen eye to eye in the past, which is an understatement. Uh, very much so. Murdy says he was pleased when Cruikshank asked to join him. Cruikshank says it was completely her idea. Isabel says that life is full of surprises. Crookshank says that Isabel and Larry got off on the wrong foot, but not all Murdy's family feel the same way about Isabel. Isabel says that, well, after all this, she doesn't know that she can think about business. Uh, but Mary asks if Isabel's received the letter. Sorry, Mary, Murdy asks if the Dowager has received the letter yet. Um, and Isabel doesn't think so, but Clarkson has told the board that McGee accepted the position. Murdy says that they, he and Crookshank will be coming to the opening, and Isabel says, well, don't say anything to the Dowager. Murdy says he's afraid they'll all look bad when she finds out, and Isabel is like, uh, Why are they going to the opening? Like, they've been in there a bunch of times. Uh, to support the hospital. Oh, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. You're okay, Murdy. (laughs) In the kitchen, Anna says it's odd to think that Daisy and Mosley will be side by side with their exams. Mosley says his won't be nearly as long as Daisy's. Mrs. Hughes admires Daisy, and Mosley says they'll need lunch on the day. Mrs. Patmore says she'll make it. Mrs. Hughes suggests inviting Mr. Mason. Daisy says he's got so much work to do, but Mrs. Patmore says she will invite him. Daisy doesn't understand why they can't just leave him alone, and Mrs. Hughes says that's not very gracious. Right. Daisy walks out, and Anna says uh, that it's nerves that's causing Daisy to act like a complete freaking weirdo. (laughs) Yeah. And Mrs. Patmore says only partially. Yeah. In the upstairs hall, Bertie meets Edith and suggests they walk down together. And Edith says yes, but she's going to look in on the night nursery first. So Bertie comes along, and Edith introduces Bertie to the nanny, who asks if Edith can stay there while she runs down to the sewing room. So Edith's like, yeah, sure. Uh, Edith points out George, Sibby, and Marigold, who are all asleep. She gets to Marigold, and she's like, this is my pet. <laughs> <laughs> she was raised by pigs. <laughs> she knows their ways. 
Bertie says that Downton is a lovely place to grow up, and Edith hopes that I mean, is didn't true. Didn't she grow up there? Yeah. Like, shouldn't she like have an opinion? Uh, yeah, you would think. Back in the kitchen, Mrs. Hughes complains to Mrs. Patmore, who says they always knew Carson was old to be trained as a husband. Mm-hmm. It is difficult work. Yeah. Mr. Mason uh, comes in with a basket, and Daisy asks what he's doing there. He said he brought the basket as a thank you to Mrs. Patmore. Daisy says he already said thank you, uh, which, you know, you would think you wouldn't want to bring that up since you threw that note away. Right. After opening and reading it. Mrs. Hughes says that that's very nice of him, and Daisy says they've got enough vegetables in the kitchen garden, and Mason says that uh, the house needs the vegetables. Oh, and that Mason needs his own vegetables more than they do at the house. Mrs. Patmore says to never mind her, she'll make soup and stock and all sorts with these. And Mason says he'll leave them to it because he is a nice human being uh, who people enjoy being around. Yeah. And if it wasn't, I mean, like, Daisy is so rude. Like, it's not as bad as the War Widow's comment, but it's darn near. Like, yeah. how when somebody brings you a thank you present, don't be like, ugh, this is gross and we don't need it. Like, yeah. just, just, ah! Just shut up. Yeah. Just take the vegetables. Yeah. At dinner, Bertie suggests that they put a servant in each of the rooms that the public will enter. McGee asks Carson to sort it out. Mary explains that the tour will include the small library, main library, painted room, drawing room, smoking room, great hall, and dining room. Bertie says to rope off the staircases and asks who the guides are. Branson asks if they need guides. Bertie's like, uh, yeah, dude, if you want the visitors to go away happy and not steal things. Shouldn't they have just, like, called him on the phone and be like, hey, do you have any tips? They should have, but they thought they knew everything. Bertie asks who knows the history of the Abbey. Edith says only their librarian, but he is away. He's uh, been away for years, actually. Disappeared at the same time as the Gutenberg Bible. How strange. <laughs> they suppose they should check on him at some point. <laughs> he sold it to some thugs and brown shirts who say the most horrible things. <laughs> Bertie says, well, they'll have to fake it. Branson says that he doesn't know a thing about the place. Uh, Bertie says that McGee and the daughters can lead groups of ten uh, through the through the abbey, and McGee says that she feels like the Belgians awaiting an invasion. Mary says, or the monkeys in a zoo. And Branson says, oh, that reminds me. I have to call my nephew. <laughs> and that brings us to our second recurring segment, Fashion Backwards, with our very own estate expert, Kelly. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Always welcome. So, we are going to talk today about the sale and destruction of country houses in Great Britain. Okay. Um, I thought this would be a very, you know, time period appropriate subject, given that throughout this series, we've been led to believe that World War One, like, in and of itself, mm-hmm. had this, like, devastating impact on British country life, uh-huh. essentially. That doesn't really seem to be the case. Hmm. Um, most of what I found has cited much more World War II as being the, you know, really devastating blow that mm-hmm. and extremely high, uh, death taxes that mm-hmm. were levied mm-hmm. in the wake of World War II. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of other factors that have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but that seems to really be the, the huge turning point, mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, and we're seeing a lot of, you know, things being sold off and things like that, which would have been happening due to the agricultural depression that started in like the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're seeing the effects of that and, you know, some of the troubles that Downton and other neighboring estates are having. Um, 
but it seems like these extremely high death taxes and then World War II, so many more of those estates were commandeered by the army. And I saw this was really interesting um, that prior to World War II, most servants had never seen the upstairs or, you know, common people had not seen the upstairs of these houses. Uh-huh. Um but then once they had, you know, whether they were volunteers or in the army or if they were, you know, patients or, you know, whatever's right, going right. on, there was this huge uh, change in perception about the houses, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. Like they both like didn't want to work for them. But <laughs> right. at the same time, the general public felt a great deal of ownership about these houses, mm. which we will get into as well. Before I start talking about the houses themselves, let's talk a little bit about the National Trust. Okay. Uh, up until I did this research, I only knew the National Trust from the lyric in the Beatles, Happiness is a Warm Gun, yeah. that says, a soap impression of his wife, which he ate and donated to the National Trust, which is gross and weird. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, in 1895, the National Trust was founded, and its full name is the National Trust for Places of Historic Interest or National Beauty. And it's just a a conversation. (laughs) It's a uh, conservation organization. Mm. Uh, Scotland actually has an independent National Trust for Scotland. Uh, No word on Ireland. (laughs) Um, So, historically, their focus is the country houses, and they were given statutory powers by the government in 1907. so, you know, it's also in later years expanded its reach and, you know, they they protect historic landscapes and also historic properties. Like, for example, speaking of the Beatles, Paul McCartney and John Lennon's childhood homes mm. are also part of the National Trust. Mm-hmm. Wales has National Trust, too, dedicated to preserving historic L's and W's. <laughs> um, okay, that's too much. I can't really get too much into the National Trust because we'll be here all day (laughs) talking about the National Trust. (laughs) Okay. So more historically, um, in terms of these country estates, so the loss of wealth for these estates really kind of started uh, when income tax was first introduced. This Mm. is in 1799. Uh, to subsidize the Napoleonic Wars, you know, and again, in the wake of losing uh, an enormous source of income for the empire in the American colonies, right. uh, with all that great tobacco money, <laughs> the king had to start leaning on uh, the landowners. Mm-hmm. Um, that tax was not imposed in Ireland, which I found interesting. Mm. Um, so the rate was 10% on total income, and uh, it was briefly repealed in 1802 when they stopped fighting with the French. Uh, and then in 1803, they put it back and basically, you know, it's just been right. around since right. then. Um, well, they started fighting the French again. So. Yeah. Uh, so the tax was high. I'm sorry. The tax thresholds were high. So it was kind of like, you know, a tax break, essentially. You know, the wealthy could live very well and they were paying very minimal tax. Mm-hmm. But then in 1907, H.H. H. Asquith introduced a differentiation tax uh, to be more punitive to people with investments rather than an earned income, mm. uh, which really took the wind out of the sails of the aristocracy <laughs> and the gentry. The kind of tax reform, for example, that uh, one Bernie Sanders might be interested in mm-hmm. levying in the United States yeah. if he is elected president. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
the uh, Lloyd George, the infamous Lloyd George, had a people's <laughs> budget in 1909. So he actually announced plans for a super tax on the rich. Um, but that bill was not surprisingly <laughs> defeated in the House of Lords. <laughs> Super tax. Um, yeah. <laughs> At any rate, uh, that bill's defeat then led to the 1911 Parliament Act, which removed the House of Lords' power of veto, uh, mm. which fundamentally crippled them in terms of being able to fight any taxes mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so the death duties were first introduced in 1796. Um, but then in 1853, there was a new tax, succession of duty, uh, which not only resulted in tax being payable on all forms of inheritance, but also removed several loopholes to avoid paying inheritance taxes. Mm. So basically starting at the end of the 18th century, um, up to the mid 20th century, they sort of are chipping away right, at right. how much of, you know, and a state's property or, you know, a, a uh, Lord's property kind of Can, bypasses the government right. when he dies. Um, so in 1940, death duties were raised from 50% to 65%. Um, and then after the war ended, actually they were raised again in 1946 and 1949, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense. I mean, that's, you know, the post-war World War II period in England is where you see a lot more of the socialization of government happening. Uh, you know, the National Trust became a lot more active at that time, as did, obviously, um, the National Health. Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense that, you know, even though the war was over and historically these taxes had kind of been levied to pay for wars, they're like, what if we, like, invested in our people and our infrastructure instead of, like, killing foreigners? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm, you know, in favor of. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, uh, to kind of like, you know, get new loopholes after the legal ones had been eliminated, mm-hmm. um, a lot of estate owners before they died would bequeath their estates to their living heirs and therefore hop over right. the taxes. Yeah. And then if that heir was killed fighting in a war, death duties were not payable huh. um, because a soldier or a sailor or airman's estate was not subject to tax. Interesting. Yeah. So that's a lot of loopholes. Yeah. Um, but then if the heir was not married and died while he was serving, the former owner would have become the owner again. Then when that owner died, the death taxes would have to be paid. It's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, so then kind of running concurrent to all this taxation, you have the 1882 and 1900 Ancient Monument and Amendment Acts, which in short gave a town council the right to veto a property owner's uh, decision to demolish his property. Mm-hmm. This is sort of when you start getting into the idea of these great homes being part of the fabric of British culture mm-hmm. and being something that even, you know, that the neighborhood owned versus just the property owner. Right, right. Um, as you can imagine, the aristocracy didn't like this at all. Why would they And it had so? been very in vogue sort of once people started taking the grand tour to like get all these artifacts like William Randolph Hearst style, bring them back, demolish part or all of your home mm. and rebuild it in a new style. Mm. So um, it, and I don't really get this that much. Like I, I understand wanting to have like old examples of architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but like they just became obsessed that yeah. they had to have this architectural record mm-hmm. and um started you know basically going around the private landowners to be like no you can't just trash this house because mm-hmm. you feel like it yeah and i mean it's like you know it is it is a weird thing because like i do understand i mean because you oh, i'm know, sorry that the ability of the town council to say no that was a town and country planning act of 1932 okay because it's like you know on the one hand it, it is sort of a weird thing to not let people change their houses but on the other hand like once you destroy something that's you know 400 years old you've got to wait 400 years to have something that's 400 years old again you know mm-hmm. like there's no undoing that but yeah and i mean and i understand that but so many of these homes were actually built by the same architect mm. uh which is sir edwin landseer lutins okay uh you know to me you know to me there's a very methodical way that you can kind of preserve this stuff without necessarily requiring all of it to stay but mm-hmm. i mean and look which isn't to say there's plenty of places that have been demolished yeah i am just i think it's just a very non-american thing mm-hmm. um because you know i understand the context of what our historical buildings are and i feel like by and large most of the buildings that we preserve here have historical value. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not from the UK, so I may be missing a step here, but it's just yeah, like, yeah. these are just random country houses. Yeah. Like it's just where rich people lived. Yeah. But look, if they need places to set shows like Downton Abbey, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and I was thinking, and this is less relevant to your point, but when I was watching Wolf Hall again, I was just thinking like, man, in England, you're like, hmm, we need to film someplace that looks like it looked 500 years ago. Oh, how about the exact place that still looks just like it did? Yes, like, it's which just, is fair. I'm not saying, you know. Yeah. Um, That's just pretty cool. So, again, I just am wondering if Baron Fellows just lifted all of these post-World War II details and applied them. Hmm. Because uh, housing tours... You know, and, you know, obviously, as uh, the Dowager cites Pride and Prejudice, uh, you know, if you were kind of a member of the gentry, the aristocracy, you could just show up Mm -hmm. and be like, hello, we would like to look at the house. And if they were like, cool, you know, you'd make a donation Mm -hmm. uh, that generally was donated to a charity. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, it was a source of income, but not for the house itself. Um, And so then after the National Trust... um, you know, they kind of started doing that. And actually now the National Trust won't take on an estate unless there is some kind of uh, financial trust associated with the property or there is some kind of financial plan for keeping it going. Because mm-hmm. they were like, oh, wow, we are now running into exactly the same <laughs> problem as the people who used to own these houses yeah, and yeah. they're very hard to maintain. Yeah. Um, hang on one second. Yeah, so it seems like it was much more World War II than post-World War One, where this was happening. Okay. Um, it's not out of the question mm-hmm. uh, that that happened. I just haven't seen any evidence of it. Huh. Um, but just some facts about some of these homes that you've seen. I'm also going to share there's a great article in the Daily Mail about some of the estates that were destroyed. Oh, okay. Um, that we cannot see anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like they're like complaining about, oh, like now it's like part of urban sprawl and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, that's how, you know, life works. Yeah. Um, and I think we talked about this, but Castle Howard, the uh, house in Brideshead Revisited, was used in both the original uh miniseries and the 2008 adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um and that one seems to be 
independent. Like that one and Highclere Castle are still owned by the families. Mm, okay. Um, and then uh, the one from Pride and Prejudice that is Pemberley uh, is called Lime Park. And that one is uh, a property of the National Trust. So you actually can visit it just <laughs> like Elizabeth Bennett if you want. The miniseries one? Yes. Okay. I um, and I think, hang on, let me see if that was in the movie. No, that one just says the 1995 BBC production. Oh, okay. So I haven't seen anybody that says, oh, this was also in the 2009? Yeah, roughly. Um. I think so, because actually, here's the one from Atonement, which was filmed in 2007. Ah. Um, but that one also appears to be privately owned. If they're privately owned, there seems to be a lot more ability to, like, uh, host, like, an event there. Yeah. So if you want to, like, have your wedding at a great house. Well, I can imagine the National Trust would be even more persnickety about, you know, where you're running your equipment and everything like that. Yeah, totally. And, uh, hang on, let me see if there's any more interesting ones. Yeah, I'm just going to share some of these links because it's okay. like a lot of info that isn't necessarily relevant. Okay. Um, yeah, but I found it interesting that I could not find any evidence of homes being opened for, you know, profit uh-huh. at that point in yeah. history. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I'm curious as to whether I'm just missing something research-wise or if Baron Fellows has just gone mad with power. <laughs> Both are plausible to me. Yeah. The Oracle was like, you know, Julian, this wasn't really quite... Shut up! You're fired! <laughs> I'm the Oracle now. All right. So that is Fashion Backwards. Yeah. Thank you. Down in the servants' hall, Carson wraps up his instructions for the day the house is open. Anna asks if they'll be allowed to sit, and Hughes points out that it will be open for nine hours. So Carson says, yes, find an inconspicuous chair and make sure and stand if any of the family come in. Thomas asks about the upstairs luncheon. Uh, It'll be sandwiches and they'll set up tea tables and Molesley can serve. And Daisy can take his place in the hall. He tells her to look respectable. So Uh, Good luck. Yeah, weird. Uh, They all stand up. Carson asks Hughes if she knows where his walking stick is. Hughes says, in case you catch a thief red-handed. Carson says, you never know. Uh, But the stick isn't in the cottage, so he thinks it may have been left up in the wardrobe in his former room. Okay. Yeah. Uh, great. Sure. Awesome scene. <laughs> As they head upstairs, Mary asks if Branson enjoyed their London spree. He says he did. He asks if she will go to Brooklyn's to watch Matthew Good race. She says she won't enjoy it, but she wants to get over it. Uh, and Matthew Good asked her to give cars another chance, and maybe she should. Branson actually, uh, very enjoyably asks who this flexible person is. He doesn't recognize his own sister. Could this be love? And Mary also correctly says to shut up. <laughs> In their bedroom, McGee tells Lord Grantham that Bertie seems nice and is very organized. Branson was jealous. Lord Grantham asks what his prospects are, and McGee asks what Edith's prospects are. Yeah, she does have a bastard child that she has to explain. Yeah. Lord Grantham says he doesn't know, but maybe with this magazine, she can become one of the interesting women of the day. Hasn't she already become one of the interesting... I'm very interested. Yeah, I think she would be if she was in London more often. Uh, McGee says that 10 years ago, that would have filled him with horror. Lord Grantham says that he's changed and the world has changed. McGee says that Bertie is a gentleman. He can't object on that score. Lord Grantham doesn't object on any score if Edith loves him, but he doesn't think they should encourage it. Why is he so determined to torpedo every relationship this woman has? Right. I think... I think he's not saying that they should discourage it. I think he's just saying, see what happens. Don't, like, go trying to make it happen. I'm just mad at him, okay? I, no, no, that's I'm just fine. mad. That's what, Still. Okay. No, that's reasonable, given what happened. 
McGee says that she took Bertie to see Marigold, but didn't say why. Lord Grantham says that she shouldn't say why. McGee says that she must eventually. Lord Grantham says that that is Edith's decision, and McGee needs her sleep. Carson leaves his old room in the upstairs hall with his walking stick and sees Andy leaving Thomas's room and asks what he was doing in there. Andy says he was borrowing a book. Carson wants to know where the book is. Andy says he left it in Thomas's room and oh, he'll just get it in the morning. Yeah, and this is so, it's so bad because Andy like he has this panicked look and then he like is like aha like he's like I've come up with a great excuse borrowing a book like oh man what a maroon so then there's a montage of preparations for the opening and uh, they're setting up the box office on a table outside and Thomas ropes off the stairs did they just have ropes around uh, apparently villagers are lined up and Branson apologizes for the wait and asks people to form parties of ten. Some ill-bred commoner complains that he's been there since nine o'clock and Branson's like, you're in the next group, sir. McGee leads a group explaining that the third Earl built the house, or rather enveloped it, because the main hall is medieval. It was actually the monk's refectory in an abbey that Henry VIII sold. <gasps> I'm reading Bring Up the Bodies and they're doing that right now! Indeed. Very exciting. <laughs> Somebody asks if that's why it's called Downton Abbey and McGee clearly demonstrating her lack of improv skills as she supposes so. The person asks who painted a painting. McGee doesn't know. Mosley does know. Yeah. Mosley, as it happens, knows more about this house than anyone who actually lives there. Uh, but he is ignored by McGee as she herds the group along. She points out the painting on the staircase, which is a Reynolds, and then points at another painting and says... That's quite good, too. <laughs> so it's going great. Yeah. In another room, somebody asks Edith to tell them about the people in a painting. And Edith says, oh, they were all rather marvelous and sort of living that life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like some shepherds. <laughs> it's dogs playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> somebody says that the room isn't very cozy, but Edith says it is at night. The first guy asks about the architect, and Edith says, oh yes, Charles Barry. He built the Houses of Parliament, or at least finished them, and built lots of lovely big buildings. I guess we could have looked him up, huh? I did look him up. He did what the, the original Houses of Parliament burned down, or mostly burned down. Typical. I want to say in like the 1830s or something like mm-hmm. that. So he built the Houses of Parliament as we see them today, including ah. Big Ben. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> In the library, Mary doesn't know who's in the painting over the fireplace. Somebody asks about a little girl in another painting. Mary says he's actually a little boy, but she doesn't know who. (laughs) The Dowager Countess walks in and Mary asks what else they can say about the library. The Dowager says it was made by the fourth Earl who loved books. Mary asks what else he collected. And the Dowager says, horses and women. Where's your mother? (laughs) As horrible as Mary's line at dinner was, is how great that line is. <laughs> yes. Mary says that she's in the Great Hall. How would Mary know where she is? Or are they all... Because they're all they're guiding like, the group. Or Anyway, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to sit here and try and parse out the logistics of this tour. <laughs> yeah. The Dowager heads off angrily. In the Great Hall, somebody asks why the shields on the fireplace are blank, and McGee says she's never noticed that before, and she has no idea. And what I like about McGee is she is not, she's just super chill about she's not American. knowing anything. She's American. She doesn't give yeah. a fuck. Yeah. She's not going to pretend that she knows. She's just like, oh, I don't oh, know any of this. I'm sorry. This is a uh, thing I forgot to say during Fashion Backwards, uh-huh. but another problem with a lot of these estates and why they would get demolished 
was due to the aristocracy's habit of marrying other aristocratic people who may not necessarily have had a fortune, but they did have an estate. So a person could potentially, uh, it's a bit like hyphenated names. Uh So if you're a person whose family already owns two to three estates and you marry somebody else who also has two to three estates, but you've only got, say, you know, one income between the two of you. Right, you're right. You're pretty screwed. Okay, yeah. Um, so there's that. And then there's also, and the Duke of Marlborough is a big example of this because he married a Vanderbilt mm-hmm. uh, who did not want to marry him yeah. in order to continue living in the manner in which he was accustomed. Right, So right. Sorry. Okay. Sorry to slow you down. Sure. The Dowager storms in and asks McGee if she knew when the Dowager was last there. McGee attempts to suggest that this is not the time for this, but the Dowager asks her again. McGee doesn't answer. The Dowager says that she let her babble on about victory and asks if she's told Lord Grantham. McGee says that the Dowager of all people doesn't want to bore their visitors, who are not at all bored. (laughs) (laughs) But the Dowager tells her to be quiet and walks off. Downstairs, Mosley asks if Baxter's all right. She's barely been in this episode. Yeah. Perhaps this is why we like it so much. <laughs> she says she's going to go see if McGee needs anything. No danker whatsoever. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> no danking allowed. <laughs> Downstairs, Mosley asks if Baxter's all right and she's going to see if McGee needs anything. Mosley says that McGee needs a glass of water and a fan. Baxter looks troubled. <laughs> Mosley asks what's up. She got a letter from Coyle. Oh, that's great for all zero of us that have been riveted by that plot line. Coyle wants Baxter to visit him in prison. Mosley says to not even answer it, which is always the correct answer when a toxic person reaches out to you. Yeah. And then Carson comes in and tells Mosley that nobody's on duty in the library. Yeah. So in the kitchen, Mosley heads in and asks Daisy to relieve him in the library. She asks about the sandwiches. Mosley says he'll get them after he sets up the tables. Patmore reminds him to bring the tablecloths. Uh, Mosley says that Patmore wouldn't believe what he just saw, and Patmore leans in and says, try me. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. The Dowager Countess is complaining to Lord Grantham in his bedroom, saying that her son's wife, who she's treated like a daughter, too like, says Lord Grantham, Mm -hmm. connived at her humiliation and revels as she is cast into the dust. Lord Grantham says, steady the boss. (laughs) Again, from Baron Julian's new uh, slang of the 1920s <laughs> dictionary. Yeah. Uh, McGee doesn't have control of this, and neither of them made this happen, which again begs the question <laughs> why we spent five episodes fighting about it. Agreed. The Dowager wishes that Lord Chamberlain had said something, but Lord Grantham says he never would have, and the truth is that official that the officials don't care what they think anymore, and their influence with them is finished. The Dowager asks how he can say that when his life was saved in the village, and Lord Grantham says again that emergency will still be treated in the village, and asks her to be logical. The Dowager says she's sick and tired of logic. If she could choose between principle and logic, she'd take principle every time, which does not seem like a sustainable philosophy. Yeah. The Dowager says to tell McGee that she doesn't want to see her face until she's used to having a traitor in the family, uh, which is, this is very juvenile stuff. It is. But delightful to watch. It is. She stomps out and Lord Grantham sighs. And then a young boy walks <laughs> in and asks why she is in such a tizzy. Lord Grantham says, you know, mothers, they get terribly wrought up about things. And the boy agrees that his mom does. The boy looks at some playing cards and Lord Grantham asks what he's doing there. The boy says he came to see the house with his mom and dad. Lord Grantham asks if they know where he is. The kid says no and asks <laughs> why the house is so big. Yeah, I love it. Because I was like, no. 
It was a different time. No helicopter parenting had been invented yet. Yeah. Lord Grantham says he's not sure, really, but it's the way they used to manage things. Uh, once again, Hugh Bonneville yeah. should always, always, always be acting at opposite children. Yeah. He is marvelous. Okay. He yeah. is wonderful in this yeah. scene. Mm-hmm. The boy says that they should buy somewhere comfy to live. They must have enough money. And Lord Grantham says, maybe, but you like what you're used to. Mosley comes in and asks the boy why he's in there. And the boy says, wouldn't you like to know? And runs off. A regular stick poker in training, that Indeed. one. Lord Grantham says to leave the boy alone. There's no harm done. And Mosley asks if they could shake out his pockets. Lord Grantham says he doesn't think so. He was more of a philosopher than a thief. And I'm like, don't you know anything about the philosopher thief Jean Genet? <laughs> oh, wait. That was also post-World War II. <laughs> Although he was thieving his way around uh, at the time. Yeah, anyway. but he hadn't made the headlines yet. No, but you know, thieves can also be philosophers, they is can. my point. Like, whether formally or informally, they also have rich inner lives. <laughs> In the kitchen, Patmore tells Hughes that... In the kitchen! <laughs> ...that her house is finished and ready to receive her guests. Hughes asks who will run it. Patmore says her niece. And Hughes asks how she'll attract visitors. Patmore says she will put an ad in the paper. Hughes asks how they will get in touch with her, and Patmore says she's installed a telephone in the house. What? Hughes is amazed. Says that Patmore's really blazing a trail now. I wonder if they have a refrigerator that she hates so much. <laughs> I mean, I do wonder when she was like, Mrs. Patmore hates it. I'm like, have you had a conversation with her since you were like, let's have this uh, refrigerator installed? Right, which was like how many years ago? Yeah, but, a long time. Yeah. I think before the war? I think so. I'm not sure. Carson was. Carson walks by and Hughes asks if he's found anyone to hit with his cane yet. Carson says if he had if he, <laughs> a regular Mr. Bumble. <laughs> yeah. Carson says if he had his way, he'd hit the lot of them. Hughes asks if it's going all right and Carson grudgingly says that it seems so. Patmore asks Carson for a word, so Hughes leaves. Patmore says she's a bit worried about Andy. He may be innocent, Patmore's not infallible, but Andy is young and Carson ought to know. And Carson already saw some stuff, so Yeah. Out front, Murty greets the Dowager Countess, and he introduces uh, Miss Crookshank, and he says that he took her to meet Isabel. The Dowager asks what Larry thought of that, and Crookshank very, like, you know, smoothly insists that there's been a misunderstanding. Larry isn't Isabel's enemy, which uh, is not what we've seen any evidence of. Right. The Dowager says he gives a marvelous impression of it. Crookshank asks the Dowager to tell Isabel that she would never want to stand in Isabel's way, nor will Larry, not while Crookshank is around. The Dowager is intrigued and says that's very interesting, and Murdy also says it's encouraging. The Dowager will leave it at interesting for now. Yeah. And McGee runs out and asks if she can speak to the Dowager, and the Dowager says not now and pieces out. Yeah. In the servants' hall, Mosley asks if dinner's finished. It is. Mosley hopes that Baxter has thrown away that letter from Coyle. And Mosley says that she should, but Baxter says she has to think. Why? When you are so bad at it. <laughs> Thomas walks in and says, think about what? Baxter says nothing that would interest him. And Thomas says she doesn't know what might interest him. Carson walks in and says that that's what he wanted to talk about. There's a pause. Mosley figures out that that is the cue for him and Baxter to leave, <laughs> so they do. Thomas says he hopes that Carson doesn't want to hit him with his walking stick. And Carson says no, but he won't beat about the bush. Someone has reported that Thomas has a private understanding with Andy. Thomas says not this again. Carson says that he wouldn't have given it much mind, but he saw Andy leaving his room. Thomas asks how long he has to work there before being given any credit. And Carson says that that's all very well, but he must look to Andy's welfare. 
Thomas asks, what if he gave his word of honor that nothing took place of which Carson would disapprove? Carson says, if only he could be sure. Thomas says his word is still not good enough, and Carson says that he only wishes it were. I mean, you have tried to blackmail basically everyone below stairs, and even though your blackmailing ways are years in the past... Anyway. Yeah. In the bedroom, Lord Grantham says, Golly Moses, you astound me about how much money they raised. Branson wonders if they could open the house regularly, and McGee asks if he means for charity. Branson says for them. The house costs a ton of money to run. It doesn't raise a penny for washing its own face. So again, very forward thinking here. Lord Grantham asks if he's being serious, and he finds it a revolting suggestion. Edith agrees. Branson says fine, but there may come a day when they can't ignore such an opportunity. Lord Grantham hopes it's when he's dust mcgee says branson and isabel were right firing thomas your you know perfectly loyal servant who your children love not revolting oh yeah yeah anyway well he's gay (laughs) mcgee says branson and isabel were right people are curious about what it's like to live there (laughs) gee the middle class people in your life who are like well this is the problem with marketing in general yeah um you don't want to listen to the actual people you're trying to reach (laughs) Uh, Edith says that it's sad. It means their way of life is something strange. A museum exhibit. A fat lady at the circus. Which, come on, it's at least like a lion. (laughs) Mary says, trust you to cast a pall of doom. Which I do agree with in this instance. Because it's like, come on, Edith, that was a good time. (laughs) Lord Grantham says that he had a visitor who thought they were mad to live there when they could be comfy in a normal house. Mary says she refuses to listen to that kind of talk. Downton is where they belong. McGee says... That she hopes they stay as long as they can, but it may not last forever. Mary says that's weakling talk, but she and George are stronger and they are not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, she's going to do very well in World War II, mm-hmm. assuming she's not taken out in the blitz. <laughs> in the servant's hall, Thomas sits by the fireplace crying. <sighs> yeah. Can we just throw this poor man a bone, Baron Fellows? Yeah. No, and it was so, like, him in that scene with Carson, it was just so... Rob and, Collier James, again, yeah. just so much better than what this role actually is. Yeah, because, you, you know, and just him, like, he's not going to let Carson see how hurt he is. You know, he's always, mm-hmm. like, maintaining this pride, which in so doing helps drive people away. Yeah. Like, it's this whole thing. Uh, so, yeah, great episode. Loved just a it. really, Loved that it. ending really Had hit. such a great yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which brings us to the Abbey Awards. Hooray! We'll lead off. We're going to change it up a bit this week. Uh, an award worst evasion. To Andy. <laughs> for saying that he was borrowing a book without thinking about the fact that he could have said he was returning a book. Yeah. Thus it- deflecting any suspicion that he's illiterate <laughs> and being plausible. <laughs> Next up, we have worst decision. Goes to the Dowager Countess yeah. for confronting McGee in front of the entire village. And as McGee says, you of all people yeah. should mm-hmm. know not to do this. Yeah. And uh, just ooh, yeah. a misstep. Yeah, a misstep. But notably not that terrible of a decision. There was not that much bad decision making this yeah. episode. No. Oh, man. Clothes looked great. Decisions mm-hmm. were good. Just every, you know, the conflicts came mostly from outside the house. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. It was. Next up, we have Worst Overbite. And that goes to Lady Mary. Uh, for her wretched comment about war widows. Yeah, her widow shaming. An overbite perhaps unparalleled <laughs> throughout this series. 
next up we have the Gibson Girl Award. And that one in, as we said, a very tight race this episode, but we did go with Lady Mary. Yeah, so clearly being a horrible bitch <laughs> does not preclude one from winning the Gibson yeah, Girl. Yeah, indeed. As she uh, was delivering her worst overbite line, she was wearing uh, the best outfit in the episode. Yeah, uh, which is a beautiful blue gown with gold accents and a gold headband. Yeah. Uh, and it was a headband that really worked on her. She hasn't right. really been... Yeah, really doing well but her, her headband game is inconsistent but her coat when she was going to catch the train to london was great and her hat had this amazing like rick rack on the top mm-hmm. um even her sort of like casual like sweater and skirt ensemble and her blouse and skirt just looked amazing the yeah. whole time isabel very strong runner up in this episode mm-hmm. uh wanted to give it to her kind of as a consolation prize mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah we have to uphold the integrity of the gibson girl award right but just note that Isabel was look good. Yeah. Next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. Lord Grantham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you only have one bathrobe? And what was up with your eye makeup? I know the eye makeup is not like a character yeah, it choice. it technically shouldn't count, but... But we're counting it. He looked the worst. But also, there weren't that many people who looked that bad. Yeah, also, So, yeah. you know, it really got us out of a bind. <laughs> it did, yeah. Next up, we have Cutest Baby. And that goes to George. Uh, the other two were only in there for a second, but oh man, like yeah. anytime he interacts with uh, Thomas is great. I guess yeah. we could have maybe given it to that little boy. That's but true. He but the he's, that yeah. was more, as Lord Grantham says, philosophical than cute. <laughs> yeah. And finally, we have the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. Everybody hold on to your butts. That's right. It's our first five. Yes. Our first yes, five it is. of the series. Oh, she's back. She is back. She's so we had in fighting form. Some Murdabel at the beginning, uh more Murdabel at the end, with her being skeptical about Crookshank. Uh her, you know, like you know, ill advised as it was, her meltdown in front of the village was just so enjoyable. Well, and you know, her her confidence that she was gonna win this house yeah. just it was really like old school, you know, real Edwardian hubris from yeah, her, which is what yeah. we're always looking for. Agreed. Uh, Describing herself as the people's representative on Earth. Yes. I mean, just full marks. Yeah. Really great. We'll see. You know, maybe she's in an ascendancy yeah. that will last through the end of the series. Here's that hoping. would be great. That would be great. Because nothing makes us happier mm-hmm. than awarding the full five Maggie Smith. That's right. It's our Twitter handle. It's our reason for doing this podcast. <laughs> so uh, everybody, fingers crossed yeah and yeah i mean there's only what like three more episodes yeah one of them is the christmas special which right. we generally divide in two yeah. but still crazy mm-hmm. yeah so until next time up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. luncheon out